0: Today's Sunday Sermon has been made possible by the members of Southside Christian Fellowship Church and listeners like you. Thank you for your continued prayerful and financial support of this ministry. If you would like to learn more about us or want to give a gift, please just go to our website at southsidechristianfellowship.net today. The sword of the Spirit is the Bible. It's the written Word of God. It is what we are to study, to learn, to be able to use in a fight. And as we've talked about, you're in the fight whether you want to be or not. The fight is not optional. Whether or not you stand up to attack or defend is totally up to you. But the fight is here. Does it ever feel like you're in a boxing match with life? Who's winning? Chances are some days you feel you have the upper hand, but other days feel like a losing battle. Where do we turn when we get beat up emotionally, financially, spiritually. As Christians, we should be turning to the Bible, the sword of the Spirit. It's our most effective weapon in a spiritual fight. In today's sermon, we'll take a look at the final piece of God's armor and how it can be used to attack, defend, and build confidence. Well, that leads right into what we're talking about today, which is Stand Firm. This is part six of that series, and it's all about spiritual warfare. It's all about putting on the full armor of God. But before I get into that, I thought I would open up with a little bit, little story for you. It seems to be Dad's favorite story here lately. And I heard it from Ravi Zacharias. One night, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson had retired. They were uh, asleep, and something woke Sherlock up early in the morning, like before the sun came up. So he got up, and he looked up at the sky, and he saw the stars and the moon. And then he proceeded to wake up his uh, partner and companion and colleague, Dr. Watson, and said, Watson, look up at the sky and tell me what you see And Watson looked up and he said, I see stars and I see a moon. He said, but what does it mean, Watson? He said, I I think it means that we're just, we're part of a vast universe. He goes, yeah, but what does it mean? So he begins to list all of these different things that it might mean, you know, astrologically, human, archaeologically, anthropologically, all those ologies and things like that. And he lays it out and Watson, uh, Sherlock says, yeah, but what does it mean? Watson says, "Well, well, what does it mean to you? He said, Watson, you fool, it means somebody stole our tent. <laughs> Sometimes we get to looking at the stars and all the deep meanings that we forget the fact that somebody just stole our tent. So I opened with that story to tell you that today I'm not teaching you something deep that's so hard to understand, so, so out there in the vast universe. It's really simple. If you look up and you're supposed to have covering and a tent's not there, somebody stole your tent. Amen. As always, I want to review with you just a minute to to kind of recap what we've been talking about. Standing firm is just something that God told us to do, and it sounds very simple. Dad kind of showed you a demonstration this morning about trying to turn around, and it was difficult because the enemy was holding on. Well, this is similar, except as Christians, we need to be able to stand firm and not allow the enemy to move us as well. So I want to look back at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. And it says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm. Turn to your neighbor and say, stand firm. firm. Against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. I wish everybody in here, myself included, would just print out that statement right there and put it up everywhere you see. Anytime you start to struggle and have a problem, our first instinct is to talk about it in the flesh and in the now. When in reality, the Bible is very clear. Somebody stole our tent. It's that simple. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, no buts about it. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, I heard somebody recently say, if there's a therefore, your first instinct should be to ask, what is the therefore, therefore? <laughs> Think about that. The therefore is to let you know what to do when you're in this fight. It says, therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to do what? Stand. Say it again. Stand. To stand. Amen. So we've talked about several pieces of the armor. In fact, we're going to talk about the last part of it today. The first thing we want to remember is to gird our loins with truth. It's simple as this. Surround yourself with the truth. And then when the lie approaches, you'll be able to spot it easily. It's that simple. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Notice the breastplate covers your heart. If our heart is submitted to God, that's the right relationship that we are pursuing is that breastplate of righteousness. We want to shot our feet with the gospel of peace. Too many times in battle, we think of uh, war the way man does. But man's version of war is full of pain. It's full of anger. It's full of, it's full of struggles. God's way of fighting is very spiritual. It's full of love. It's full of peace and sound mind. Then we talked about taking up the shield of faith. You know, faith is built off of our testimony. The word test is right there in testimony. To build your testimony, you're going to have to go through something. But as you go through something, that, that faith will begin to build. You have to know who you are in Christ Jesus. That's where your faith comes from. And then we, want, we talked about taking up our helmet of salvation. That helmet protects our head. As we talked about last time, you can can function without certain parts of your body. But if you lose your head, that's it. It's over. You're dead. So the helmet of salvation protects our head. We're to take our thoughts captive. But it also, in uh, Roman soldiers' days, it has an emblem. And that emblem, for us, is a sign of hope. It's the hope of our salvation. We can't ever lose sight of the fact that through Jesus, we have salvation. Today, I want to talk to you about the sword of the Spirit. John Wesley talked about the authorship of the Bible, and he said, the Bible must have been written by God or good men or bad men or good angels or bad angels. But bad men and bad angels wouldn't write it because it condemns bad men and bad angels. And good men and good angels wouldn't deceive by lying as to its authority and claiming that God wrote it. And so the Bible must have been written as it claims to have been written by God, who by his Holy Spirit inspired men to record his words using the human instrument to communicate his truth. Amen. And then I read uh, somewhere from John MacArthur when you really think about all the people that were involved in writing the Bible, think about this. The authorship of the Bible is so wonderful. There are words written by kings, by emperors, by princes, by poets, by sages, by philosophers, by fishermen by statesmen, by men learned in the wisdom of Egypt, educated in the schools of Babylon, and trained at the feet of rabbis in Jerusalem. It was written by men in exile, in the desert, in shepherds' tents, in green pastures, and beside still waters. Among its authors, we find a tax gatherer, a herdsman, a gatherer of sycamore fruit. We find poor men, rich men, statesmen, preachers, captains, legislators, judges, and exiles. The Bible is a library full of history, genealogy, ethnology, law, ethics, prophecy, poetry, eloquence, medicine, sanitary science, political economy and the perfect rules for personal and social life and behind every word is the divine author God himself. Amen. 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 tells us that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Why am I talking about this? Because the sword of the Spirit, that is exactly what it sounds like. The sword of the Spirit is the Bible. It's the written Word of God. It is what we are to study, to learn, to be able to use in a fight. And as we've talked about, you're in the fight whether you want to be or not. The fight is not optional. Whether or not you stand up to attack or defend is totally up to you. But the fight is here. There are three things that I feel like the sword of the Spirit is useful for. One is for attacking. The other is for defending. And the third is for building confidence. You see, in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, we all know those scriptures. We've heard it many times. But Matthew 28, 19, and 20 tells us to go and make disciples of all nations, tells us to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, to teach them to observe all that I commanded. That's talking about Jesus, right? And then he said he would be with us always, even to the end of the age. How can we teach somebody else what we don't know? After spending 15 years in education, I can guarantee you that I was not able to teach kids anything that I didn't know. But I can guarantee you they learned something every time they came in the room. It was either going to be what they were supposed to learn or they were going to learn what they shouldn't learn. We have a mandate. Going is the attack. We're not waiting for people to come to us. We're going out there and we are trying to win souls. We're on the attack. The sword of the Spirit is for the attack. The Bible is what we use, the Word of God. It's also for defense. We've talked about taking our thoughts captive. The enemy is going to attack us. I've said several times, and I still believe it. I believe that if you're not being attacked, chances are pretty good that you're not pursuing that relationship with Jesus Christ. See, if I already have you captive, I'm not trying to go capture you again. I've already got you captured. So Satan's not messing with me and wasting his time if I'm already away from Christ and not pursuing him. But if we are following Christ, he's not interested in us getting any closer to Christ. Why do you think that we're having so many attacks on our children? Why do you think the message going forward is so confusing and complex? Because if we can get the mind of children when they get older... The Bible says they will not depart. Now it's meant to help you understand that if you'll train them in the right ways, that when they grow up, they won't depart. But unless Jesus comes in, if you train them in the wrong ways, then they're also going to continue those wrong ways until such time as Jesus gets a hold. Negative thoughts attack us on a daily basis. The all or nothing thought, overgeneralizing things, personalizing it, mind reading, jumping to conclusions, disqualifying the positive, should, must, ought to. These are all things that enter our mind that we have to take captive. They become negative. They become negative thoughts. Well, what I really want you to remember is the quote on the difference between worthlessness and shame. That applies to those negative thoughts as well. We take it to the extreme. We begin to think that we're worthless, that there's shame. And Craig Hill wrote in uh, his book, Ancient Paths, that shame as opposed to guilt is a deep feeling of wrongness of being. Guilt, on the other hand, is a feeling of wrongness Of action. Guilt says I made a mistake. Shame says I am a mistake. If I make a mistake, there's hope. But if I am a mistake, there's no hope. Many people continually try to rid themselves of the feeling of shame through doing things they hope will help. They then become human doings instead of human beings. We can use the sword of the Spirit to attack We can use the sword of Spirit to defend, but I'm going to tell you one of the greatest benefits of having the sword of the Spirit, and that's to build confidence. When we pursue that relationship with Jesus, there are bumps in the road. There are ups and downs. It's promised. There are trials. There are tribulations. There's persecution. And each time we hopefully get stronger and we learn from our successes as well as our mistakes. And hopefully what's happening is we're building confidence. But if we don't know what the Word of God says, then we constantly twist in the wind. We're constantly thrown by the waves of the sea. We don't know if we're coming or if we're going. We're constantly on a roller coaster with ups and downs. But if we know the Word of God, if we know what it says, then when those thoughts come in and when those attacks come in, we'll know how to defend, we'll know how to then attack but we'll also have confidence in who we are in Christ Jesus. There was a former French prime minister who used to have duels quite frequently. Back in the old days, you got mad at somebody, you just went and had a duel. One guy won the argument and the other guy was dead. It was that simple. (laughs) And evidently, this guy liked to argue because he liked to fight. And as I learned yesterday, uh, he had a second. I thought it was a second in command, but I was educated by my mother, that the second was kind of like today's ball boy, or caddy, and he carried the guy's gloves and sword, and I guess he handed it to him and wished him good luck. I don't know. But anyway, both of them were at the train station, and the former prime minister bought a one-way ticket. And the second thought about that for a minute, and he looked at the prime minister, and he said, that's kind of pessimistic, isn't it? And the, the prime minister looked back at him and said, nonsense. He said, I always use my opponent's return trip ticket to get back home. <laughs> he had confidence that he was coming back home and he wasn't going to waste any money on another return trip ticket. He just used the other guy's ticket to get back home. Another story that I, that I heard recently was about a, a baseball player. His name was Ted Double Duty Radcliffe. And Ted got to telling stories about baseball. And one of the stories he would tell is about uh, throwing runners out at second base. He was a catcher. And his favorite memory was throwing... Uh, Ty Cobb out trying to steal second. And he stood up after he threw him out and he pointed to his chest. And on his chest, he had scrolled or he'd written, thou shalt not steal. <laughs> he also told a story about Satchel Paige. And Satchel Paige was so confident in his skills that one time he asked his entire outfield to simply come in and sit on the bench while he proceeded to strike out the side. If you don't know what that means, that means all three batters got up, he threw three strikes, they sat back down, not a single ball was hit to the outfield. He was that confident, he had his outfielders just sit down. That's confidence, isn't it? You know, I think we all go through times of confidence, and then we get knocked down a peg or two, and then we battle thoughts of, am I good enough? I know for me personally in this journey to to become a pastor, preaching and and teaching, uh, I feel confident, and then I'll sit in a Bible study, and somebody will ask a question, and I'll not know the answer, don't even know how I would respond to that. And I'll listen to some of the people that respond, and Dad specifically, and I'll go, oh, wow. And then I begin to doubt, and I begin to think, am I really able to do this? Am I really able to lead people? I don't know that stuff. I don't, I don't know the Word as well as he does. Or like I've said many times before, I do enjoy listening to Robbie Zacharias, but the one thing I have to remind myself is that God's blessed me too because Robbie confuses me because he's so intellectual sometimes. He just has an enormous gift for understanding those things. But I have to remember that God didn't call me to do what Ravi is doing. And if he had, he would have equipped me to do what Ravi is doing. And the same is true for you. We can't look at other people to compare ourselves to and try to be like them from the standpoint of exactness. For me, I have a lot of love and respect for my father. I would love nothing more than to be like him or my grandfather. I mean, it just, it's, I see what they do. I see the heart they have. And so you guys have been on this journey with me, and the first few times I preached this year, I think you could tell that I was trying to be something I was not. I'm trying to preach the way that my father preaches. The problem is, I'm not my father. I'm me. And God being God, sent messages several times. You know, you can get a word from somebody, and you can put it on the shelf. But if different people keep coming up and saying the exact same things, unless they've gotten together to talk and to orchestrate this, Chances are pretty good God's trying to tell you something. And the message I kept getting each month was, God's telling me to tell you, Herman, to be yourself and not try to be like other people. And I thought, maybe, maybe I should stop trying to be like my dad in this area. And I should just be me. And then I'll talk to dad and tell him my concerns and my insecurities and my weaknesses and my thoughts. And he'll say, remember, I've been doing this for a long time. I didn't start out at this level. I didn't start out knowing everything that I know at this point, and I still have a long ways to go. And then I remember my grandfather at 91, who I think many of you have sat under for teachings, and I'll hear him say constantly, Man, I still, there's still so many things I don't know. There's still so many things I don't know. And I'm going, How? I don't, what? You know, so why would I think that I'm supposed to be any different or any further along? God's got me where I'm supposed to be, doing what I'm supposed to do with the tools he provided. And the same is true of you. What we've got to do is stop looking for what everybody else is supposed to do, look for what God's asked us to do, look for the tools he's put inside of us, and learn how to use those tools to educate, to teach, to exhort. You know, we talked a lot this, this last semester on activating the gifts of the Spirit. And one of the things that we talked about was the fact that if you have a passion for something, there's a good chance that that's a gifting that God's given you. And I've been around people that are so passionate about what they're doing. I remember John Whitener, who I think is coming in in March. He's coming in January, so pretty soon. John, John Whitener would come to the church and he would preach, and this has been decades ago. And John would get done preaching and I was ready to go sell everything and go be a missionary in Mexico. Man, that guy was good. And I did go on a mission trip or two, but God really worked with me to explain to me that John has a gift. John has an anointing for what he's doing. I'm not anointed and called for that particular job, but I am anointed and called for a particular job. And the sword of the Spirit, the Bible helps me to determine that. One, because it educates me on what's available. It's hard to apply for a job if you don't even know what's out there and what's available, right? God lays it out. He lays out how we're supposed to go about our lives. He lays out how we're supposed to go about learning and educating ourselves. You see, when we start listening to thoughts, we forget who we are. Yeah. Psalms 139.14 reminds us that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Amen. When people tell you that you're nothing, that you're worthless, when the enemy comes in and tries to tell you these things, you've got to remember to use your sword And quote back the Bible. When Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, what did he use? The Word. He said, it is written. He quoted the Word. He used his sword of the Spirit. See, it's the sword of the Spirit because it is Word revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. It's not a sword of flesh and bone. It's a sword meant for spiritual warfare. See, in Genesis 127, it reminds us that we were created in God's image. More importantly, you go down to verse 31 in that chapter, and it reminds you that he looked at that creation, and he said not just that it was good, but that it was very good. When people are telling you you're not worthy, you need to quote back to them that God made you in his image, and he sat back and he said it was very good. See, I have a problem sometimes. I try not to be cocky, and I try not to be a guy with an ego, but it's very hard because I I realize that God made me who I am. How do you not get egotistical when you know God made you the best thing there is? We ought to all be walking around chest poked out, yeah. Why? Because God made me. But that is the key. I didn't make me. That's when I get it out of whack. I can walk around with confidence when I put it in the right context. And that context is I was made special. I was made who I am by God, by Jesus Christ. See, Ephesians 1.4 says, He chose you. He chose me. Somebody tells you you're not special, you're not set apart to do anything, that you want to amount to anything. These are some of the scriptures you've got to quote back. And then you look at Jeremiah 29.11. And I want to read that one to you. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. When we say there's no future and no hope, we don't know the Word of God. When we say that God doesn't have a plan for me, we don't know the Word of God. We've got to get in there and study the Word of God. But it's so vast, Herman. How do I study it? You study the Word of God like you'd eat an elephant. You know how to eat an elephant? Thank you, one bite at a time. The trick is not to be be, um, tricked into doing nothing. One of my pet peeves is when somebody gets upset with the church, leaves the church, but never goes back to church. You've been tricked by yourself, by by the enemy, by the world. You got hurt by that church, fine. Go to another church. I'd prefer that you listen to God and do what God asks you to do. But either way, don't let that take you out of the game. See, we sometimes let our own thoughts and our flesh take us out of the game. You know, when I think of the spiritual fight that we're in, boxing comes to mind as a good metaphor. And I was even thinking about that this morning, and I realized, you know, boxing has a set of rules associated with it. And my first thought was that's not like the spiritual fight because it's like a street fight. But then I realized that's not true. It does have a set of rules that govern the fight. That's what's in the sword of the spirit. The Bible dictates and governs the rules of the fight. You see, back in Job's day, Satan had to ask permission from God. In a street fight, you don't have to ask permission. See, it's not just a street fight. There are rules. And if you learn those rules, you'll know how to operate in those rules. And more importantly, you will win the fight. Well, when I think of boxing, I think of movies more than I do actual live boxing. I think of my favorite movie I think of all time with boxing, and that would be Rocky. Chances are pretty good no matter what age you are, you've seen a Rocky movie because I think there are 45 of them now. And the great thing is, I love this analogy because pretty much what I'm going to talk about happens in every movie. Creed 2 just came out last year, and it made me think about that. Rocky's still alive. Now, he's become the trainer, but, you know, there's still boxing going on. Well, Rocky IV was my favorite of all time. And in Rocky IV, if you remember, there was a, a big, huge Russian, and he was just, he was unbelievable. They'd show him, uh, you know, boxing around in the ring, and when he would punch, his punches were so powerful, like the, the pounds per square inch were so massive, they'd kill a man. In fact, they wrote that in the storyline, and he did, in fact, kill Apollo Creed in the ring. Just looked unbeatable. And I thought, you know, a lot of times that is how I feel like we view Satan. We view him as the Russian, as somebody so powerful and unbeatable that we can't even break him. You know, I'm reminded of the story of the children of Israel. They've seen all these plagues come forward and the miracles that God's done They cross through the Red Sea, which parted. They get through, and then it just engulfs the the Egyptian army and kills them all. And they still grumble and complain and doubt God. So much so that when Moses sent out spies to the promised land, they all came back but two and reported with fear. They saw the unbeatable, unbreakable Russian. They didn't see it the way God sees it. Joshua and Caleb saw it the way God sees it. And they reported back, much like stories of King David and everybody else, that they could win the fight. That, yeah, they looked big, but God had promised them the land, and so they didn't have any problem going to battle. They knew they would win. But we get in that ring sometimes and we see this unbreakable Russian. Well, if you continue in the movie, eventually Rocky does cut the Russian and makes him bleed. And it's that point... That everybody just has a revelation that, uh uh-oh, maybe he is vulnerable. Maybe he can be beat. And what rises up inside of Rocky? Confidence. Strength. He now knows that he can hurt his enemy. You see, sometimes we don't even know we can hurt our enemy because we don't even swing. We're in the ring. I told you, you're in the fight whether you want to or not. You're in the fight. But sometimes we just stand there with our hands down. Taking punch after punch after punch. Never even swinging. If you don't ever swing, you will never cut the enemy. You've got to be willing to take a swing. You see, sometimes I think we walk around thinking that our life is supposed to be all nice and neat since we're Christians. But 2 Timothy verse 3, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not might, not sometimes, will persecuted. Be persecuted. I heard a message recently from Grant uh, Patrick, who is one of the pastors at Passion City. He said, Life is not painless, but pain is not purposeless. You see, God will bring purpose to your pain. Amen. And you see, if we're gonna go to the next scripture of Revelation 12:11 where it tells us that we overcome the enemy because of the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony, loving not our own lives even unto death, then we're going to experience some pain. You see, when Rocky was in the ring, he experienced some pain. He got battered and bruised, but he kept getting back up over and over again. Why? Because he knew that he was gonna win that fight. And my favorite part, and the revelation that God gave me, was that when Rocky gets hit one time and he's bleeding and he's down to one knee, You know, that's a picture of us when we're in that fight. Sometimes the enemy makes us bleed. But think about this for a minute. If you're a Christian, whose blood is that that's coming out? We're not bleeding our own blood. And if you're bleeding the blood of Jesus Christ, you can be guaranteed that you're going to win that fight. You might get hit once or twice. You might get knocked down. But if you get back up and you bleed the blood of Christ, you will win. They overcame him. Now think about this picture here. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb. What did we say was pouring out when we're getting hit? Blood. Whose blood? The blood of Jesus. That was shed for each one of us. Because the word of their testimony, I know who I am in Christ Jesus. I know what I've been through, and I know where he's taken me. They did not love their lives, even unto death. You got to lay it all out on the line. We are in a spiritual fight. We have tools available to us. But if we never open the toolbox, and if we never practice with the tools, then they're not going to be good for us in battle. The sword of the Spirit is one of your most useful and effective tools in your arsenal. Every piece of the armor is not only functional, but purposeful and useful. If you're missing even one piece of that, you're vulnerable. The sword of the Spirit brings it all together because that gives you the weapon to go after the enemy. You have to know the Word of God. And the only way you're going to know the Word of God is if you get in there and you start reading and you start studying and you start praying. We have lots of opportunities here at the church for you to learn more about the Bible. There are lots of classes that happen every Wednesday night. There's church on Sundays. There's podcasts. There's websites. It's not just our church. There's lots of ways you can access the Word of God. But you have to make the decision to get involved. You've been listening to Sunday Sermons from Southside Christian Fellowship Church, a place where you're loved, accepted, and received, a place of healing, a place of prayer, a place of hope. We invite you to join us this Sunday and every Sunday. For service times, location, and other information about the church, please visit our website at southsidechristianfellowship.net. Again, that's southsidechristianfellowship.net. As we wrap up today's message, we would like to once again thank you for listening. We would like to also have Papa Herman, an elder at Southside, to speak a Father's blessing over you. May the Lord bless and keep you that He would cause His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, that the Lord would lift up the light of His countenance upon you and give you His peace. And remember that the Lord's favor is with you all the time. Expect it. It is with you. It's manifesting itself to you. It will overtake you no matter where you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.